0: Almost always, dad might or your husband might make decisions on their own, and as the wife, you might make your own decisions. And maybe you don't talk to each other because you about them because you've just decided that's that those are your roles. But when you have a child, I highly doubt that any decision that is made about that that child is done exclusively by dad. Almost always, dad checks with mom or lets mom know. It's just a it's just the way we're built, right? That's true. (laughs) It's hundred percent accurate. And so I used to, and I, I, and I sort of came into the company with that whole idea in mind, that moms are making this decision. We have to appeal to moms.
1: Sarah Dorsett is an e-commerce leader with more than two decades of experience scaling brands like Cody, Bed Bath & Beyond, and Bloomingdale's. Sarah now spends her time navigating the challenges and excitement of being the CEO of Nanit while simultaneously managing the needs of her three young children. You're about to hear how Sarah leads Nanit in its mission to support the journey of parenthood through the development of its products that connect parents to their baby's health and well being, how she spearheaded a $25 million Series C fundraise, and the strategy behind the launch of their new product. Coming up, Sarah shares the road that led to her transition into the role of CEO. How she helped build Manit by adjusting their marketing strategy. The platforms that have been the secret to their success in driving customer acquisition. Sarah shares her tips for managing their Series C fundraise. And finally, Sarah shares her best tips for balancing a high pressure career with motherhood. Sarah, we are so excited to sit down and have this conversation with you for many reasons. And first, for me personally, I am a super Nanit user and customer, and I love having conversations with CEOs and founders of some of my favorite companies of products that that I've used in my life. So I cannot wait to hear about your entire career journey and story. So thank you so much for being here with us today.
0: Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here too. And very happy to hear that you're a
1: satisfied NANIT <laughs> user. Oh, yes. I am like the biggest promoter of this product. I tell all of my friends who are having babies that this is the, the best device. And I feel like I'm always posting in Facebook groups and people are asking which, which monitor to buy. I'm like, you have to use the NANIT. So that that just shows when you have a really great product, your customers are your best best brand advocate. So That is definitely me. So can't wait to hear all about the Nanit story. But before we get into that, Sarah, you have two decades of experience in e-commerce and management and leadership. We'd love to hear a little bit about your background and what led you to become the CEO of Nanit.
0: Oh my gosh. My background is so, it's definitely not a straight line. So, <laughs> you know, I always thought I would end up kind of in New York in, in the artistic field. I thought I'd be in the business of the arts. Honestly, that's kind of where I thought I would end up. My mom likes to say that when I was in fourth grade, I walked into her classroom. She was a teacher after school and said, mom, I know what I'm going to be when I grow up. And she said, what? And she goes, I'm going to be a CEO. And she didn't know what that was. <laughs> She was a teacher. She had no idea how I found out even what that what that meant. But anyway, um, my journey didn't kind of start there, though. That wasn't in my head. I think I said that in fourth grade and forgot about it, thought I would move to New York. So I ended up moving to New York. And interestingly enough, as I was kind of trying to make my way through the arts world, I also was sort of the junior member of, of various teams. And I was kind of working in the beauty industry at the time. And when you're the junior girl in marketing, you get all of this stuff that no one kind of wants to work on. And at the time, no one wanted to work on e-commerce. No one wanted to work on websites because no one understood what they were and what they were supposed to do. And everybody thought, oh, it's that thing everybody's kind of like dabbling in, but doesn't mean much to anything because, you know, we don't care right now. So I ended up getting to play and do web stuff and kind of be this generalist and really learn on the job, the the amazing kind of web world before it really became important in any way. Um, But I spent about 10 years in the beauty industry working with amazing women who were building these incredible beauty brands. I worked for Cody, which was at that time really focused on celebrities. So I was working on celebrity brands and understanding and watching kind of how they worked and how they developed products. And it was a really kind of the early days of celebrities attaching themselves to products too. So really kind of incredible experience um, back then and doing all sorts of amazing things online. What I loved about the online space was I was still kind of in the business of the arts in a way, because it's an extremely creative space, but there's sort of no end to what you can do in it. So I ended up sort of falling in love with this idea that people want to buy stuff online or they could buy stuff online. And no one was doing a lot of that back then, (laughs) but it exploded within just a few short years. And I moved quickly into kind of big department store retail e-commerce. So started at Bloomingdale's before they really had a website and partnered with their sister, company Macy's and we really built these this this huge business where you're working on all of these brands and at the time being in an e-commerce space was incredible because you were working directly with each brand trying to help them figure out how to build their brand online so it was so much fun because you got access to all of these to everyone and definitely worked my way through kind of different retail environments so Bloomingdale's being more of that fashion retailer then I moved into kind of a designer off price, which was century 21 department stores, which is a really, really fun experience kind of transforming that business and building it online. And then um, moved over to Bed Bath and Beyond and Bye Bye Baby as well. Um, and had a just each experience kind of kind of built on the one before. But I'd say that because it was always about kind of starting small and building these huge businesses and having just so many different things to play with and work with, um, so many problems to solve, uh, but really getting to own the business, kind of within a business in a bit more of a safe way. Uh, Moving into Nanit as the CEO was a really nice kind of transition out of those 20 years. Um, It was a great product. So watching in the retail industry, you really sort of watch Which brands succeed, which products succeed, and which don't, and how customers engage with each one and and, and why. And this is Nana is just an incredible product in that way. So I fell in love with everything that was going on and everything that I'd seen as a success when it came to, you know, my retail days. It felt really natural and normal to just move into the CEO role and and build this product and and work on this, this kind of tech-heavy amazing partner for parents the only thing i would say is that i don't know anything about startup world so it was a that was a that was a shift for me so that was what was really nice is that was a whole new thing for me to sink my teeth into and learn um but yeah that's that's how i ended up here
2: thank you for sharing all of that background what was it like coming into nanit as the new ceo how did you approach the first few months
0: Well, what was interesting is I actually didn't start as the CEO. I started as the president. So for the first six months on the job, I was the president and I was partnering with the founder who was the CEO. And I think VC backed startup worlds can actually be a little tumultuous and they have milestones. And sometimes there's a milestone where the founder CEO moves out of that position and a different CEO moves in. Um, And that's what happened with me. So six months into the job, the board, um, all of the investors said hey i think you're a better fit for the ceo role let's move and the founder is is better in kind of a more of a product role a chief product role in the organization so that was a surprise because i definitely thought that i was going to stay kind of running the commercial side of the business which is what i was hired to do and and do all of the stuff that i was you know kind of Um, trained to do that I knew how to do that I was experienced in. And then I move into the CEO role where, you know, I have to work with investors all the time. I'm now like running and owning board meetings and I'm talking to people who I never, you know, and learning things about companies that I never really knew kind of behind the scenes stuff that all those CEOs do. And so transitioning into that was actually, was scary. (laughs) Um, But I would say, uh, very, very rewarding, but it probably was one of the biggest learning curves of my career in that it's very difficult to take on a job like this when you are replacing a founder, because founders are so passionate about their companies, so passionate about what they've built. And it's a really delicate subject. It takes a lot of willpower, I would say, <laughs> to really hang on and say, all right, you know, this this isn't going to last forever, kind of, you know, this this transition phase, We'll get to a better place, but I think all companies kind of go through that when they have to make that big move.
1: Can you describe the difference in the role between the president role and now what you are responsible for as the CEO? Yes. So when I
0: came in as the president, it was kind of framed as this, everything that was kind of customer facing, so the entire commercial side of the business. So anything that was marketing, go to market, um, sales related revenue, anything attached to revenue in the company was all sort of my playground. Um, And then anything that was technology, operations, and even finance, believe it or not, kind of fell on the CEO's plate. So anything that the consumer sort of touched was my responsibility. And then the back of house, you know, new product development, how the finances were managed, that was all his role. So when I took on the role, I took on the back of house, which actually wasn't that difficult because when you run an e-commerce business, you're actually managing all that same stuff. But this was a lever- level of detail and just a different type of business because of how it was backed financially. There was a, a lot to learn um, and to kind of
1: unravel and figure out, and in many cases, actually rebuild. What do you think the board and investors saw in you that made them, you know, quickly tap you for the position because you would have only been with the company for six months at that point?
0: I think there were a couple of things. I think one... The business changed almost immediately when I joined, because there. I knew from just that experience I sort of talked about, um, I know this space, I know this consumer really well, all of those department stores that I've worked on in their e-commerce businesses all had baby and infants. I understood how those shoppers worked, how, what they thought about, and I just knew what was out there and what was in the space. So when you walk into a company you're like, I, I get this, um, I think I was able to put a few things in place and the business just kind of skyrocketed. But there were a lot of still open questions in that back of house world that I wasn't really, I wasn't influencing and and touching. Um, It was still being influenced by, by the founder. So I think they quickly saw that I needed to have some influence there. And that's one of the reasons why they moved me over. The other thing was, I think they had a really strong sense that a female leader for this company would be pretty powerful. And I always, I always say we're sort of at the time we were really techie, we were kind of marketing to dads, you know, there were these wonderful dads who had created this business. And so I got it, but most of the time doesn't matter, you know, what relationship you're in almost always dad might, or your husband might make decisions on their own. And as the wife, you might make your own decisions and maybe you don't talk to each other because you about them, because you've just decided that's that those are your roles. But when you have a child, I highly doubt that any decision that is made about that that child is done exclusively by dad almost always dad checks with mom or lets mom know it's just a it's just the way we're built right we're that's true moms. It's 100% um, accurate. and so i used to and I, I and i sort of came into the company with that whole idea in mind that moms are making this decision we have to appeal to moms And I think the investors quickly saw, well, you know, you're clearly a mom, like you're kind of all mom in many ways, you know, and, and you have these three kids and you understand this product so well, unlike other tech products, especially in this space, which there aren't a lot of tech products in this baby space, having a female who's a mom who really just knows this whole tech world and knows how to sell all this stuff would be, they thought a competitive advantage for us overall as well.
2: Can you share some of the changes that you immediately made in those first six months that resulted in the company just skyrocketing?
0: Yeah, a few of the things. So, first the first thing was, you know, we had great product market fit. So we knew this product, anybody who bought it loved it, but not enough people were buying it. (laughs) So that was the problem. Why aren't people buying it? Everybody who has one just loves it. What are we gonna do here? So the first thing was I actually went to the website. So the website itself, I'm looking at all the channels, I'm looking at sales. Um, I was able to bring a little bit of history with me from the websites that I'd run. So I had a little bit of data about what was going on in this world. I actually sold at bye at baby before I joined, joined the company. Um, but our website was very technical. You know, when you went to our website, all you saw were, you know, the camera, and it was doing this 3D thing, and it was camera, camera, and it didn't have any, there was no emotion to it. It was just kind of a physical product that was supposed to look cool and
2: do cool stuff.
0: And that is not at all the way that families, that's not what they're going through. That's not what parents are thinking when when they're having a baby. The first thing they're thinking about, you know, most of the time they're thinking, oh my God, this is incredible. This is amazing. I can't wait, but I have to learn so much in nine months. I have to take care of of a new life, right? And we needed to tap into, or I thought, we needed to quickly tap into that. We needed to immediately make an emotional connection with this product. So we created a video. Actually, shot it in my home within the first two months. We edited it very quickly, got it up, and the whole website just became kind of this immersive video around what Nanit could do for you and what it was meant to do and how you would feel and what your family would look like. And immediately engagement, the second anybody went to the website, engagement tripled, and overnight. So people were spending a ton of time on that website all of a sudden because they could watch this video and they could engage more and they had a feel for for what it was doing. And what I knew, mm-hmm. one of the reasons why I started with the website, just to back up a little bit, was I specifically asked what people were searching for. So what were they searching for on Nanit? Were they searching for smart baby monitor? Were they searching for monitor? Were they searching for camera? It turns out they were searching for Nanit. So they had already found out about us, which means they were going to our website first. So our website was the place that I started. All right, let's just change the whole story of Nanit, That whole look and feel. Let's make an emotional connection with this brand. That's what's going to get moms and dads excited about this product and and what a difference it can make in their lives. And then the second was actually channel strategy. That was one of my big things. Was we have a small team. You know, we have to make some money fast. I can't be in every little boutique in America. I have to start. You know, with some big wins in a few spots. Um, and those big wins were actually at the major retailers where the biggest baby registries were. So I wanted to be on everybody's baby registry. So I found out what those biggest registries were, whether we were in them or not, and how we could take advantage and leverage any of the the kind of marketing opportunities that they might have to drive people to add Nana to their registry because that ultimately could predict our future sales.
1: What were those registries and how did you approach getting connected with them? I know a lot of our entrepreneurs who are listening are very interested in partnerships for their brand. So what's your secret sauce to to getting in contact and making those partnerships happen?
0: Well, I will say that sometimes it's a little pay to play, but it's worth it to invest, (laughs) but it's worth it to invest. So the big wedding, uh, baby registries, I keep saying wedding because I've also worked on wedding, but registries in general are kind of a unique animal. They're actually kind of their own sites, but they're embedded within those those big giants. So that's where kind of my experience came in. I understood how they worked and who owned them. So who were the players who owned them? In the baby space, the big ones are Amazon, a company called BabyList, which is kind of an aggregator of baby sites. Target was a big one, uh, Bye Bye Baby, and to a a lesser extent, Walmart is also on that list, but those kind of four were, were pretty important. Interestingly enough, we were at Bye Bye Baby, but we weren't cranking on the registry. In fact, there was a little bit of angst from the buyer side in that organization about why we weren't doing better on the registry because our sales and our registries, our sales were outpacing our registries, which is a very strange thing. Amazon, uh, we hadn't taken advantage of the registry because there wasn't a support financially. Um, so, my predecessor hadn't funded anything that we could do to kind of drive registry sales there. And then we weren't in Target. We were just launching online. We didn't have a store footprint there at all or presence there at all. And then uh, Babylist was actually just growing at the time. So, over the past couple of years, they've grown and they're huge now, but and we're great partners with them. And they were, we were there from the beginning. So, that's one of the things I would say is developing the relationship, we ingested all the data that we could and looked at the data and said, this is how we're doing. And our partners love that because we were doing all of that analysis for them. And then as we were kind of going back and forth with that data, they were helping us with additional opportunities. And then we were testing and learning. So we were really working with our partners over there. And then, so we took off on Amazon really quickly. I immediately said, no, we're, (laughs) we're not, not funding this. We're funding this. So we immediately funded kind of these um, registry placements. Um, one of the things I will say, as you know, anybody who's kind of listening in, is when you're partnering with retail partners, one of the most important things is to get placement on the websites themselves. Don't fund offline placement. Fund where people land. So if somebody's typing, you know, in Nanit or Smart Baby Monitor, you want to you want to fund that position in the first spot. Don't fund the offsite Google search ads, fund where you sit and where you live. It's just like an end cap in a store, you know, you pay to kind of get in that spot, pay to get those eyeballs. Um, and that's, you know, if you have a small budget, that's the best place to kind of focus your energy is, is getting the best placement for the very best keyword. So just do a little bit of homework. Everybody's kind of working online these days. So it's kind of the, the basics to kind of figure out what people are looking for, but then own that space. And that's really what we did. And then it took us a couple of years actually to get, um, We actually changed the product a lot just to be able to get into Target stores. And so we only launched in Target stores this year.
1: Oh, wow. Congrats. What did you have to change to get in? And is it a specific product just for Target or it's the product now for everyone?
0: So our Nanit Pro camera um, was inspired by Target. Um, We actually needed to build a new and better camera that was less expensive for us so that we could kind of meet some of the retail requirements or we would never be able to afford to get into Target. So we basically launched an entirely new product, built a whole new product in order to be able to to sit on their shelves. How long did that process take? Shockingly it took, well, it should, it should take about 18 months. That's what it should take. If you do it kind of the right way and you're really focused and you really give it the time it needs. We took eight months. (laughs) So we, um, and during, it was during the pandemic too. So it was our number one priority. That was a huge undertaking. I put a ton of risk on the business, and I was very vocal about it. That's it's it's a huge risk to build a new camera. We actually changed manufacturers in China. No one could travel to China at all. You know, before then, everybody was going back and forth all the time. So, replacing your current product, which is a tech product, with a brand new product, and it's such a sensitive one because it's for parents, you know, who are relying on it for their baby's safety. I knew how incredibly important that was, and and the entire there's no question that we had to hit kind of this deadline, because we, we wanted to be available for target shoppers. So I deprioritized a lot of things in the company so that everybody knew that this was the top priority and this is what we had to stay focused on. And there was really no failing here. <laughs> so we went through rigorous testing, more testing than we've ever done before, um, but we still got this brand new and better camera out the door in eight months.
2: How do you decide uh, whether or not it's worth it to take such large risks? What went through your mind making, changing the the product, your focus for eight months and how did you decide it was worth it to, to push that forward?
0: I would only recommend doing that if you have a lot of trust in your team, if you really know who you're working with and what they're capable of. So I'd been with the company for almost a year at that point. So I knew all the players. I knew who, what everybody's skills were. I knew how they had been handling the current camera, but I think you really, really, really have to have the right team and I would have never signed our team up for doing that if they hadn't been with the company for an extended period of time and I knew that they could do it I knew they could do it they felt like they could do it you know everybody everybody was really supportive of this so that's number one I I never would have signed the company up if we didn't have the talent in place to be able to execute it and the second was I knew how big the opportunity could be basically between staying with the old camera you know and 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 kind of maybe reaching hitting a ceiling potentially and not being able to go into some of these bigger retailers that we wanted to be in um, and not being able to successfully reach kind of profitability with, you know, the right margins on our products um, and not having enough room to kind of play with our, our product offering. I kept thinking about it as, Oh my gosh, I can just limp along. You know, I can play it safe. (laughs) I can play it safe and we'll keep grabbing, you know, the little bits and pieces that we can, or I can, take a very kind of singular focused approach to this. And we could basically, you know, take this business, uh, you know, turn it into a rocket ship. So, you know, it was kind of one or the other, and I chose rocket ship. Um, But again, the team really had to be in place for, um, for us to do it. And I had to sacrifice a lot of other priorities. So a lot of the things that I wish the camera had today that I'm now working on, I couldn't do. I, I had to just say no. We're not doing any of this. We're just staying focused on making sure that this camera is hugely successful. It's better than the old one, um, than the older one. Not that you know they're both actually wonderful. If you have either I have one, have the older <laughs> one and, it, and yeah.
1: it's awesome. So it, this yeah, one must be really great. <laughs> great.
0: You know, we tried to make sure that connectivity, connectivity, and even just even better image quality um, was a, was a big deal for us um and then just giving the camera a little more juice so that it could do a lot of future stuff but ultimately i wanted to make sure that the camera was just a lot more efficient to produce
1: so you mentioned making sure you have you know the best team who can who's really up for up for what has to be done to to make things happen can you share with us a little bit about how you hire the right team any tips and lessons learned to being sure you're bringing the right team on board
0: it's interesting most almost every position I've had I walk into a pre-existing team. so there's there, there are some people in place. So the very first thing I do is kind of evaluate all right what, am, what do I have to work with here? So I spend a lot I dedicate a lot of time to the people themselves who they are, why they're with the company and what are their skills, but not even and what are they passionate about and if those two things kind of don't match, then I kind of try to figure out what is it that can get them there. So the very first thing is, what what do I really have to work with? What do I see as the potential of these people? And I've been fortunate across 20 years to have worked with so many different types of people. That sort of people evaluation is quick for me now. Oftentimes hiring, as you probably know, takes a while. So my first goal is not to go out and try to hire an army of people because that basically slows down your company for a while. You know, so I usually look for a few critical hires. So some key people. And oftentimes, even if you just have one or two people in your company, who you really trust. A lot of times companies are founded by, you know, um, more than one person. They usually know someone or they know what they need. So I usually listen to what they need first. So what does everybody believe that we need? And is, you know, where's that coming from? And do they know someone who they could potentially recommend? So immediately I go into kind of network mode because it's the fastest way to get a few kind of key people in place. And I wouldn't call it hit or miss. I'd say there's a lot of success in that um, hasn't always been perfect. And then if there's a big hole in the company, then, and then I prioritize, you know, how we actually hire and what we need for that particular role. And sometimes it's me, like right now we have a few opportunities at at kind of a leadership level. And that's probably 50% of my time is going to finding just the right people. Um, and, and kind of putting them through just the right process so that they wanna join the company, but we have enough feedback internally as well to make sure that, they, um, that they're that they the
2: right fit. What is the hiring process at this very senior level?
0: Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, well, it's interesting because up until about February, we decided to, to go out and fundraise during the pandemic and we were successful. So we largely built the company and doubled the business over two years with only hiring about five additional people. You know, we really hadn't gone out in any meaningful way and hired kind of senior executives. So when we got the funding, it was all of a sudden, you know, that was the first thing my investor said is who who's going to be on your leadership team? You know, who else do you need and, and what do you need to look for? And because of the stage that we're in and because of the current fundraise, we did decide to partner with recruiters. I partnered actually with one who I trusted who actually hired found me for the, the position at Nanit, which I have to say that any recruiters out there, <laughs> the man who um, who helped me, you know, secure the position with Nanit stayed in touch for two and a half years. And I found that to be pretty mm-hmm. incredible. You know, that's a pretty amazing thing to have somebody just check in with you, make sure everything's going okay. And then, you know, the first thing I thought of was, oh, he's great at sourcing these roles. He knows me really well. So he's gonna know, you know, which people are gonna be a good fit or not. Um, so a big piece of advice when it comes to working with recruiters is uh, find ones who want to develop a long-term relationship with you um, over time. Even after they've landed that role for you or helped you get into the role, if they reach out and they stay in touch, it's it's amazing how quickly you can hire people when when they just kind of know who you are and they can say yes, this person has all the skills, but they're not going to mesh well with Sarah, or that's not going to be you know the type of person that she likes to work with. So that was one of the roles and then it was completely the opposite for the other role i also you know used a used a recruiter and we had to build that relationship so it took a lot longer but the process interestingly enough the process is different for everybody at, at the senior level so because i'm not completely comfortable with a couple of those more more senior roles i actually have an investor sponsor so the first step of the process is i do the interview And then one of my investors who's agreed to partner with me on the search um, does the next one. And then the two of us are aligned. We have a short list of people um, that they can meet internally. And then we reach out potentially and have them maybe meet one other friendly um, investor as well. So it really depends on the role. So thinking about who you want to partner with you on assessing candidates, especially at a very senior level, I think is one of the things that that I've actually sort of had to learn the hard way.
2: What types of questions do you ask in the interview process? Do you have any typical go-to questions?
0: Well, it's kind of funny.
2: The first thing, so I have
0: a whole process that I go through. There's certain things that I want out of each person. So the first thing I do is figure out, you know, what it what am I really looking for? What would be ideal? So for instance, for somebody working in finance, a senior finance role, a partner for me, at this point would be someone who would be excellent at fundraising, you know, who's had a background in fundraising, has had successful, has been successful at fundraising. and can really take a lot of that kind of off my plate. And then all the, the normal kind of CFO financial functions, you know, they're really good at, but when they're successful at fundraising, they're kind of already really good at all that stuff because they know how to tell that financial story. So I was looking for that, but the first thing I do in the interview, so I, I know right away, okay, I want this person to be able to do this and I want to hear, you know, what their answer would be, but very first step when I have senior people who are reporting directly into me. Number one, I usually hire people who are kind of nothing like me. So I tend to like to just open up with sort of a a lot more, a much more kind of relaxed discussion. And I like to see if we have a rapport, how they talk about themselves, if they have a couple of, of questions and, and how we kind of banter back and forth, if we're automatically starting to problem solve a little bit. Um, once I sort of, you know, give the overview of Nanon and they say, oh, that's really interesting. Have you thought about this? I love that kind of creativity. So I usually watch for that. And then I usually, the, the actual things that I'm looking for them to spike for, I usually kind of backdoor in <laughs> because I like for us to sort of already have a relationship when I start to literally start to grill them, you know, with, with questions. Um, so, so it's normally um, by the time we get to The real questions that I'm looking for, it's you know, like how would you evaluate you know a a successful project? So, for instance, I was working on a a chief product officer role, and I really wanted them to be really analytical. I wanted them to show me, to tell me about kind of what KPIs they used. What did they, what did they use to measure success? and when you lead with a question like that i feel like they automatically kind of have to get defensive about what they're doing and why are you being so specific you know and that that warm up is so important when you're working with with the ceo of a company that I always recommend that you sort of start there, start kind of casual, start informal, build the relationship, and then start asking kind of about, you know, projects they've worked on, what they've been really excited and passionate about, what they wish they could have done a little bit better. And then how do they really measure success? You know, what are some of the key things that, you know, they're the people that they sort of have to report to expect from them? Kind of a roundabout way, I guess, (laughs) conducting an interview.
1: I would love to learn a little bit more about the fundraising process. So when you did this fundraise for Nanit, this was your first experience fundraising, correct? Yes. So yeah, walk us through the process and what it was like, and would love to hear any learning lessons, any mistakes you maybe made during the process. And clearly you were successful in the outcome, but so how did it all happen?
0: Oh my gosh. Well, when my board sort of said like we think you should go out and fundraise, you know, I immediately my heart started racing and I'm <laughs> sweating and um <laughs> I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you know, what am I going to do here? Because uh, I actually had done kind of an internal round, what they call an internal round early on when I first took on the CEO role of the company. But so I sort of got my sea legs because I was working with all of our investors because it was internal. So I was pitching to their partners. Um, so I did fortunately get a lot of experience just working with internal and that would be my first kind of piece of advice would be find some friendlies. Um and I'm lucky because then it has a big cap table. So there's a lot of people who I can reach out to and just pitch my ideas to or show a couple slides to. But the entire process I was I was fortunate enough where I sort of, you know, when they first said, hey Sarah, go out and fundraise one of my investors said, we get it. We know you're going to need some help. And I said, thank goodness. Um, So he was generous enough to give one of his resources to me to help me with some of the finer, more detailed questions that I wanted to to get answered before I went out and raised so that we could kind of build that story. And that's what we did. I spent about three months actually building a deck, putting together the story of the future of Nanit, what it needed to look like, and really having something, you know, like a, a piece of collateral that I could really point to and use that honestly always ended up kind of grounding me because I felt so good about it. After that, when I felt pretty good about it, I actually shopped it around to all of my friendly investors. So I used I used them to kind of get their, not only their feedback, but when I got to a slide that sounded a little funny or that they felt like it didn't quite answer a question, they'd give me some feedback and I'd be able to go back and tweak and edit it. From there, this particular process, because you couldn't travel. So before COVID, you know, you're on the road for for months, you know, raising money, flying all over. But COVID was, you're at your desk for 16 hours a day, <laughs> saying, telling the same story and trying to sound really excited about it by the sixth time, you know, you're, you need some caffeine or maybe a drink, I don't know. Um, but anyway, you're, you're doing it all on Zoom and you're trying to engage. And I was really lucky because one of my investors said to me after he heard the pitch, he said, one of the things I think you should do is pause and ask for questions and feedback because if, if you can keep, don't just talk to them for an hour because they're going to get so tired and so bored. And even I do, he's like, people pitch to me all the time. And I'm just kind of half an hour in, you know, I'm, (laughs) you know, I'm I'm only half paying attention. So get them to give you feedback, find moments where you can pause and get their questions and their feedback. And that was incredibly valuable, I would say during, during the process. It's interesting about the baby business is Mm -hmm. that there's not a lot of things that you can measure in the industry. So you can't measure value of a, a baby business that well. And so when you're pitching to a lot of VCs who are men in the space, they don't understand the space that well. So I found that I actually connected better with female investors in a lot of ways because they just just understood it like right away. You know, even if they didn't have kids. And it's interesting. The investor that we ended up going with, or or you know, who was, we were lucky enough to have invest in our company was a tier one investor, a female. She doesn't have any kids yet, but she was so passionate about women's health and and women in general. But I felt like I really hit my stride when I had kind of female investors who were sitting there at at the table.
1: Makes complete sense. Can you share a little bit about uh, how you determine the valuation of your company and how much money you're raising? I know a lot of our entrepreneurs and, and listeners of the podcast are thinking about raising money. So how do you go about figuring that out?
0: Well, you have to do the math. So you have to have a partner who kind of understands. So you're always raising, and again, I'm not an expert. So I'll just <laughs> I'll tell you what I learned. Um, yes, What that. I learned is that you really want to plan to have enough for the for the amount of cash that you need for the first for for 18 to 24 months. That's really those are sort of the the window. So it's 18 to 24 months. How much money do I really need to reach a goal? So you have to set a goal. That's pretty crucial is where do I want to be financially? You know, and that's the story you're, you're, you need to tell is financially, what can this business be, you know, and then what can it really be past that? But I am going out to fundraise for this X amount of money. And I would always say give a range. So always have a range, you know, with it, it depends on how big and how small you're, you're going, but always have a, a good range in mind. Never give kind of a flat number of roughly, you know, where the money will take you. Uh, what you plan to do with it and why it's important, you know, and and what that kind of future always kind of plant that seed of what the future is going to look like and give it kind of the financial underpinnings that it needs. So spend the time answering those questions, I would say. And then from a valuation perspective, you should have a target kind of in your head. So you can kind of know the nuts and bolts of valuation and what that looks like and what it means to certain types of investors. So seed stage investors and series A and even B investors, they're looking for a different type of multiple on their investment than a growth stage, which is what I just did. Um, so when you're doing the math, you have to kind of understand what those multiples look like. So at a growth stage like mine, oh, they're looking for, you know, four to five X on their investment. So when you have a certain type of valuation, you have to think in your head, could it be worth that, you know, when I, when you get the valuation, so. I also always want to hear from investors first, what they think is a good valuation for the company. So in a lot of cases, when you're pitching to investors, some of them are not going to bite, right? But they'll give you a lot of great feedback and a lot of great advice. Um, And one of the things that one of my current investors told me was, Sarah, you went out and fundraised. You didn't get disappointed when somebody said no, you built the relationship. So I had all these people I could go to and say, what do you actually really think this company should be worth? Do you think this valuation is good? Um, you know, I know what my investors want. I know what other people are thinking. What are you hearing? So I was able to really kind of triangulate a little bit before I landed on a valuation and and a negotiation. And that's what it really ends up being is a negotiation (laughs) when you get to that valuation part. So you kind of got to understand the multiples in your industry, have a a target valuation in your head, but you don't have to announce it. You know, when somebody asks you, well, what do you think, because they will, what do you think you should be valued at? You know, I always say, listen, I think that's a discussion. I'd love to hear from you. You know, I'd love to hear what you think. And then when we really get to the stage of a term sheet, you know, we can say, well, that wasn't quite, (laughs) you know, I, I definitely think we need to, we need to revisit this valuation piece and, and where's the room there and is there flexibility and I was hoping for something more that looked more like this and, you know, you can, you can have those conversations. So I always like to keep it a bit more open ended and less specific. Again, if they, if they're really pressing you for evaluation, you should use a range.
1: All right, Sarah, this is a fun new segment we've been doing that we didn't tell you about ahead of time. We're going to do a couple rapid fire questions. So the first thing that comes to your mind, are you ready? Sure. <laughs> I promise they're, they're not, they're not hard. <laughs> I'm so not fast on my feet. I'm like, oh, I might totally joke. Okay. All right. Ready? Describe yourself in three words. <sighs> uh, creative, um, thoughtful, and curious. If you could learn one new skill, what would it be? I'd love to learn to cook. (laughs) What is your most used emoji when you send a text?
0: Oh my gosh. It's so boring, but it's the thumbs
2: up. (laughs) It's
1: good. Positive feedback for everyone. Everything
2: is just thumbs up. Everything's good. What is your favorite book?
0: Oh my gosh. Oh, it's a toss. Well, Lord of the Rings is definitely, but Game of Thrones would have to be the second
1: what is the app on your phone that you can't live without, aside from Nanit, of course?
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. Well, I this sounds so late but I can't live without the Shopify app because I have a Shopify store. So I'm in it probably, you know, five or six times an hour um checking on sales and orders and what's going on so that's kind of a bit of a boring one but when you're when you kind
1: of no, we are big shopify fans (laughs) over here yeah Yeah. shopify is a big partner of ours at at entrepreneurs so well yes i i use it religiously (laughs) as we get through rapid fire i want to hear about uh hear about that business too courtney back to you what
2: is your favorite business solution that's helped you so i guess it's shopify (laughs) Yeah, I would say Shopify,
0: probably my team would completely disagree with me. But I'm, well, I'm not a super Slack fan in terms of like, I'm not religiously in Slack. I love the kind of quick response um, and the channels that you can put together. So I'm very much a one-on-one like Slack user. I use it like texting. So Slack has, has actually changed my life, I think. Um, it's it's helped me get out from the kind of email <laughs> web in a big way. So, um, that's probably one of the other ones
1: We're we're big Slack users too. We love it. Who is someone that you're following on social media that you look to for inspiration?
0: Mm, I don't have anyone. (laughs) Honestly, I'm so out of touch kind of not with social media, but just this idea of, I have the hardest time kind of finding people to, to follow, you know, everything kind of just ends up in my feed. So, Um, I'm sort of a a feed lurker, I guess you could say,
2: instead of a a religious follower of a a specific person. Do you have a hidden talent?
0: Well, I was a dancer for many, many years. Um, So I would say maybe, maybe used to be dance. Uh Um, That's probably the one that people don't know as much about.
1: I love that. And finally, if you could have any superpower, what would it be?
0: Such a tough one. I'd say it's either flying or being able to uh magically appear anywhere. (laughs) Being beat a few places at once. (laughs) Like beam me up, being able to just, you know, like Like being able to teleport. Yeah, like snap my fingers and I'm like I'm in Italy or something.
2: So what does a typical day look like when you're not working? Oh my gosh.
0: Well, this is unique because I just got off of vacation. So when I'm not working, I'd say, you know, my Almost all of my time is spent with family, you know, doing something with my kids. So I definitely feel, you know, I always have a little bit of mom guilt, I would say, because I work a lot. And when I do carve out, and I've gotten a lot better about kind of carving out those moments where, you know what? No, I want to I hang out, you know, at a baseball field and, and watch my kids. Or I want to spend a little time with, with some of the other moms, you know, <laughs> and hear what's actually going on. So most of the time, a typical day, when I'm not working is dedicating whatever time I can to, to whatever my, my kids might have going on.
1: How do you, you know, balance it all managing, you know, your work and a very high pressure career and also, you know, taking care of your family and being there for your kids. Are there any, you know, tips or advice you can share that's really worked for you?
0: Oh my gosh. I feel like I've kind of tried everything. So (laughs) I've learned where I used to be kind of a big procrastinator. So I was definitely the person who would make a lot of lists and be like, oh, good, it's on the list, you know, but I don't wouldn't actually like plow through the list to get it done. Um, And then the list would just keep growing and growing and growing. I would say now I tend to try to move things off my plate as quickly as I can, you know, just get it done. You thought of it, go and get it done. Then you don't have to worry about it. So it's kind of all about not letting everything kind of just pile up in my head for all the things that that I have to do. And I'm not always successful. I would say, you know, I I definitely think what's nice is that uh, while I still don't dedicate, I think, enough time to just self-care and me time, stuff that I think is critically important. I do think that if you have a high degree of trust with the people that you work with, they sort of get to know kind of what you're all about. So my team knows what I'm good at and they know what I'm not very good at and they know when I'm when I need to be, like, for instance, I need to be chased. I'm just one of those people who, you know, like I have emails, you know, coming at me nonstop and I can't get through them ever. Um, I never get to the bottom of them. And so they'll text me when they really need something, you know, Hey, I just moved that to the top of your inbox, go in, can you approve it? And then I can do it immediately. So they oftentimes follow up with a quick tech, like they all kind of know. And I love that. And I would recommend trying to establish, you know, kind of just be really upfront about the things that, you know, you're not going to be able to really stay on top of, or that aren't a strength of yours, you know, and where you might need help. And and oftentimes it's a bit of a trial and error around how that, what help might really look like. And then I feel the same way kind of with my kids, like they kind of understand when I need to work, you know, and really be focused. And I just can't, you know, I just can't spend that time this minute but they also know, you know, Hey, mom's not working now. So, you know, we can ask you for a thousand everything. (laughs) Um, And we can, you know, we can just kind of bombard her. So they, they sort of, they've they've started to learn that too, but I wish I had been more thoughtful and kind of committed to that idea sort of early on. And I hadn't just kind of learned through by
2: failing over and over. (laughs) I would love to know your thoughts on the future of e-commerce.
0: Oh my gosh, that's a big one. I think the future really is social commerce. To be honest, I think it it, 100%. I think that's so embedded in our lives today that it just completely makes sense. I know that my own um, shopping behavior, I often don't even like to kind of sift through these websites that I used to build. You know, I don't even like to navigate them. And I I always do um, kind of a search first of, of what other people are saying and what other people are recommending and and what's on a top 10 list? Like I, I my behavior around shopping is so different. And so I think the the future of e-com and anything that's kind of scaling is definitely going to have to have kind of that that social component to it. What that absolutely looks like, I think is, is still a little bit undetermined. I think that's still a bit of a playground, a bit of a frontier. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of startups out there who are trying to kind of master that but one of the biggest challenges is finding the right people to recommend the right products in the right way (laughs) when a customer you know is ready to to make that purchase so where do you find all that in this in this crazy virtual world and i think that that no one has really mastered that uh quite yet Um, so you know you have all the tried and true social platforms that work to an extent and then you have people who are kind of trying to do this virtual selling that's really relatable, really kind of in-person, this virtual person almost, real person in a lot of cases with video, with which the world isn't quite ready for either. Um, so we're kind of in this in-between phase right now where I think people honestly are probably craving a, a slightly different way. To shop, you know, at least I am. So I think that's probably. I think the future really has a huge social influence to it, but is easier than it is today for people to find something that's really a good fit for them.
2: Well, we couldn't agree more. Uh, running a social media agency, we know how important <laughs> social media is and in influencing consumers to purchase something or make any personal decisions on their lives.
1: That's how I initially found out about Nan. It was through Facebook groups and searching in there for what, what moms were talking about because I was specifically looking for a camera that had you know the ability to see if your child was breathing. And I remember the the first two weeks when my daughter was home from the NICU, uh, we didn't have the nanny yet because it hadn't come because I had just ordered it and was waiting for it to come. And those first two weeks I got like no sleep. And then finally when it came and was able to put her in the breathing wear, it was like the best thing ever because, I just had the reassurance that if for some reason she stopped breathing, the alarm on the app would go off and I didn't have to worry about it. So it was great to see those recommendations from parents in these Facebook groups. And you know, this running the business, like there's nothing more powerful than these, than these mom groups on on Facebook making recommendations.
0: There isn't. And I think that Almost every group has their followers, but parents are a bit different. Like parents really, really rely. Again, they only have that tiny window when they have to learn everything when they get pregnant, right? I think they really, I remember trusting my friends and family and other new moms who were making recommendations and buying everything they recommended <laughs> and largely loving almost everything that was recommended. It was so hard to sift through, you know, entire sites full of stuff, even though I already ran those sites and I knew all these products, you know, I hadn't tried them. I didn't have the, the, the recommendations or the true validation, um, from other moms that they were great. And it's a, I mean, in this particular space, in this baby space, it's super, super powerful.
1: Yes. There's nothing more powerful than word of mom. We say, as you know, oh, I love that. Yeah. Well, Sarah, my final question for you today is what does being an entrepreneurista mean to you?
2: Oh. <laughs>
0: Being an entrepreneur means to me, I, I know I mentioned when you asked me to describe myself, the, the first thing I mentioned was creativity. So it is kind of the ultimate opportunity to be creative. But in addition to that, it's so empowering <laughs> being able to sort of call my, my own shots in a way, you know, I you still answer. You still answer to customers. You still answer, you know, in my case, I answer to investors or you still answer to the bank or whoever you, you know, there's still, there's still those people that you have to, or those, those things that you have to make sure that you're, you're supporting. But ultimately the amount of independence you have when you're an entrepreneur, I think is, is more rewarding than anything else.
1: Well, we could not agree more and it has been so incredible to hear your story and journey and we're so excited to, to stay in touch and see how you continue to to grow your company and it's been an honor to, to hear your journey. Where can everyone find you and follow you? And for our mama pronistas who are interested in buying your product, uh, where's the best place for them to go?
0: I always say nanit.com because it's just so easy. Um, but for those moms who are building registries, those ones I mentioned, you can also find us on on our favorites, Amazon, Babylist, Target, and Bye bye Baby. Best Buy is also a great place for, you know, those techie families um, to find a Nanit as well. Twitter and Instagram are pretty popular places to to also learn a little bit more um, about not only Nanit, but I also do a lot of mentions there that are just related to entrepreneurial things, things that I find really interesting. I'd say I try really hard to keep it really positive. So if you want kind of a positive spin on the stuff that I'm kind of digging right now on Twitter,
1: um, then, then you'll find it there too. What is your handle? It's Nanit Sarah. <laughs> Nanit Sarah. Okay. We'll be sure to link out to Sarah's profiles in the show notes. Sarah, this was so wonderful. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Courtney. And this is the best business meeting we've ever had. Hey, thanks for listening and leaving us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate it. And we'd love to stay in touch with each of you. You can listen to all of our latest episodes at com. And connect with us on Instagram at Entrepreneistas. We'd also love to invite you to join the Entrepreneista League, our private membership community for trailblazing women. You can head over to Entrepreneista.com forward slash the league. We'll see you there. Wishing you a productive week ahead.